If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. Hello and welcome to the No Need for Prince Charming podcast. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by City Fertility. With a diverse range of sperm donors to choose from and no waiting time, City Fertility are ready to help you fulfill your dreams of growing your family, just like they helped me grow mine. Visit City Fertility today to learn more. So welcome to the podcast tonight, Angela. I'd love to start by learning a little bit about who who were you before you became a mum? Oh, that's such a great question because we often focus on who we are as mums and not who we were beforehand. Exactly. <laughs> um, so very happy to start there. Um, so I became a mum when I was 40. Um, and before that, I had a fantastic life. Um, my passions are traveling and food. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of travel. Um, all over the world and food goes hand in hand with that Um, and so followed those passions I lived in London for two stints Mm -hmm. Um, and I came back to Sydney gosh 12 years ago um, when my sister had my first nephew yeah Um, and so you know have lived in Sydney my whole life apart from those two stints in London Um, and always thought that I would meet someone and settle down and have kids, you know, the typical idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came out of a relationship when I was 36 and I thought that I, you know, that might be a person that I might stay with and 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 have kids with. And when that didn't work out, um, I came out of that and decided to see if I could freeze my eggs. Right. Uh, and I went to a fertility clinic and had the usual conversations. And I remember being asked if I wanted to freeze embryos. And I was like, oh, no, why would I do that? I don't have, you know, there's no man in the picture. of Why would I want to freeze embryos? I hadn't even thought about having a baby on my own. It was more about extending the time, you know, that I could have children with another person had I met them. Um, And so froze some eggs and didn't really think about it for another couple of years. But interestingly, when I relayed that back to a close friend of mine, she said, oh, yeah, I'd have a baby on my own if I could. She was already partnered and had 
a child. So that, you know, wasn't an option for her, but I kind of started thinking about it a little bit more um, and started looking into it um, and talking to people. And the first thing that I looked into was whether I could financially manage it, Mm. which talking to friends who are partnered up, you know, that's typically not the way that you start to talk about having children. But when you're on your own, I think it's something that you really need to consider. Um, not, the, not the most romantic way to start having a family, no. But. No, definitely not. But I think when you're on your own, you know, you have to think through all those practicalities. Um, and started talking to some people and, and got some advice, and which made me think around where I wanted my donor to be. Mm-hmm. Um if I wanted to proceed with it um, and the fertility clinic that I was with only had overseas donors um, and I decided through conversations with this very helpful um, other mum that I would like to have a local donor so that if my child wished to meet them at any point then that would be an option. Um, so I actually switched clinics um, and and met with the a specialist there and decided that if I hadn't met anyone by the age of 40 and if I was still able to have a child that I would give it a go that I wasn't quite ready um I was I had a fabulous life but if I hit the age of 40 and hadn't met anyone then I'd make a decision then so that was good because it just allowed me to not think about it for a while um and then when I turned 40 of course I hadn't met anyone and just decided that yes I would try just straight away bang um, it took a little while to line things up. I had an overseas holiday planned and I had to wait um, uh, to come up on the donor list. The details are all a little bit hazy for me in terms of kind of which order things happened. Um, but I, uh, you know, selected the donor, which is, you know, as you know, an interesting experience, not knowing, you know, having thought previously about what the criteria would be. Um, to choose a donor and of course you know the usual story there weren't that many options available especially when you filter through people that were willing to donate to a single parent. Did um, you actually have some that it said that they wouldn't? Yes so through mm. the clinic I went to they could um, donate to a same-sex couple a heterosexual couple or a single parent yeah. and the options that you were given had all of those on there and you actually had to work out which ones that they were happy to donate oh, to. That's sad. So, you might yeah. find one you really like and it's like, oh, you haven't taken my box. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think I didn't even look um, at them. Um, and so chose someone based on mainly health criteria, which I think is you know, quite common as yeah. well. Um, and someone that also looked like me so that, um, which I think is also quite common, you know, so that my child wouldn't look in the mirror and not look like the one parent (laughs) that they had. Um, And so I was lucky the first go uh, didn't work in terms of IVF and the second did. Um, So you did four uh, rounds again? You weren't using your frozen eggs? uh, I used my frozen, the first time I did a fresh round um, and that embryo didn't take. And then... The second time I threw my frozen eggs in with my fresh eggs and thought I'll just <laughs> stack the odds. Um, I think I had two embryos as a result of that 
round and it was actually one of my 40 year old eggs that made it (laughs) (laughs) made Lucas um and so yet the second time worked IVF you know it's not the nicest process but it wasn't terrible for me I remember having to juggle around work and appointments but kind of physically the process wasn't too bad yeah um but then I found out I was pregnant um, with Lucas. I found out at work, actually. I was in the corridor and the big head of our department was walking past at the time and I got the call from the clinic and she <laughs> was really the first person who found out, but she didn't know. <laughs> right, sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> so, <laughs> interesting. Um, and during that process, uh, so once I found out I was pregnant, I didn't tell anyone, obviously, um, and throughout that time, actually, we were going through a restructure. So that was really stressful mm, yeah. at work. But luckily, I was okay. Um, pregnancy wasn't fantastic. I was one of those people who did not like being pregnant. <laughs> um, had all kinds of physical ailments, morning sickness, carpal tunnel, <laughs> Lucas was enormous and so I was induced at 38 weeks. Um, During that time we went into lockdown, thankfully, (laughs) so I didn't have to waddle into work every day and could work from bed lying down pretty much towards the end. Yeah. There were some benefits to it all. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, And he was huge. He was (laughs) 4.12 kilos. Ouch. Um. Yes, so I was induced and uh, had a slow labour and then had an emergency Caesar because he didn't want to go anywhere, which was great given the size of him <laughs> when he arrived. <laughs> um, so it wasn't what I'd planned, but I think it was the best thing overall. Um, my mum was with me when he was born um, and thankfully because I had a really bad reaction to the anaesthetic, she was able to hold him first because I was shaking so badly that I was afraid that I would drop him. I was exactly the same. I was like, you have to take her away. I'm going to hurt her. I was yeah. like, around everywhere. So, yeah, it was the same. These things that they don't tell you. I had an epidural and had a terrible reaction to that as well. I was itchy all over my body. Um, oh. Yes, and so that didn't help with the labour. I actually think that probably slowed it down yeah. as well. Um, so yes. And thankfully got to stay in hospital for a full week, um, because of the cesarean time was extended mm-hmm. and because of the time of the night that I had Lucas and because I was a single mum, they let me stay a week and I was very happy. Yeah. Um, and my mum lives close by and we're very close. Was she supportive uh, when you just told her that this is what you're going to do? Yeah, very much so. Um, she calls himself. Uh, she calls herself Lucas's two IC. So she's <laughs> up <Yeah. laughs> in charge. Um, yeah, incredibly supportive, and she said that she would help me. Um, you know, from the start, um, my parents split up when I was young, so Lucas is lucky enough to have two sets of grandparents and they were all incredibly supportive oh great um I remember telling my grandmother who was in her 80s then and I was a little bit worried about what she 
was going to say. Um, and I videoed it. Um, and she said, oh, that's wonderful. I've always thought about that for you. <laughs> you could have told me that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, well, I hadn't always thought about that for myself, but yeah. <laughs> glad that you're supportive. Um, so, yeah, so we're quite lucky to have um, a good support network. Uh, and mum came, was only going to come and live with us, even though she lives just down the road. Um she was going to live with us for four weeks, but she ended up staying for three months. Okay. Um, which was fantastic because the adjustment was big. <laughs> it wasn't what you expected? Um, I don't think anything can prepare you for the impact that it's going to have. Um, and it's funny you know, family played back now when, when I say it's hard. They're like, we told you so, but it's like, yeah, I still would have chosen to do it. You know, yeah. it still still is the hardest thing. But the way that I think about it is that it's more of everything. It's more great stuff and it was more bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of the lack of sleep and just the general um, adjustment and I think you know, just getting stuck in a whirlwind where everything revolves around the baby and feeding wasn't easy for me. So I was doing combination feeding from, you know, when I was in hospital, uh, we gave Lucas his first um, lot of formula there. Mm -hmm. I didn't start pumping in hospital. People kept asking me if I wanted to and I said I didn't want to and they didn't explain the, you know, the importance of it in helping to bring in your milk. So you know, you're so real reliant on the people that are in the hospital with you to to help guide you, aren't you? So if they don't tell you what to do, it makes it really tough. Yeah, and so I I I had low supply. I don't know what that was for. I tried was trying a lot of different things, pumping a lot of the time. So you know, it was great to have help with managing Lucas. Um, and yet always combination feeding and he actually gave up breastfeeding himself at about four months, which was a relief. He just decided yeah. that he didn't do it anymore. I'm done with that. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, but it's, but it's wonderful. And I think the other thing that I didn't expect was the boredom that comes with being a mother. I'm not saying that I don't enjoy it. Absolutely <laughs> love it. But when you have a newborn um, that isn't interacting, you know, that's tricky. Um, and you're kind of biding the time until they have their next nap, I found, mm. um, a lot of the time. Um, but once they start being more interactive, oh, we also went through a really tricky sleep period around four months where he would only sleep for 30 minutes at a time during oh, the day. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. And I had postnatal, postnatal anxiety, um, during that time. Um, and I got some fantastic support from the Gidget Foundation. Yeah. Um, so some counseling and, um, Tresillian as well, who's a local support agency. I'm not sure if they're national, um, but that was fantastic to be able to have some counseling at four months. Cause I was just not, I was so wound up about him sleeping, um, that I couldn't relax 
Could you see it in yourself that something was happening and you needed help or did someone kind of encourage you to do, to seek that out? Um, It was probably me. So I um, have had mental health challenges in the past and anxiety. So I've recognised the um, spiral. The other thing is I would um, reward myself with a gin and tonic when he went to bed. (laughs) Yeah. and it was getting to the point where if I could have done that, only just one drink, but where I could have done that, if I could have done that every day, I would have. And I kind of just noticed that I've never had a problem with alcohol, that it, I was looking forward to that all too much yeah. and that that was healthy. Um, just so very self-aware to even pick those things up, though, because when you're in the trenches of that kind of fourth trimester, it can be so hard to see that what's going on isn't quite maybe what it should be. So well done for picking it up. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it was um, cues and probably also mum being close by. Um, but I think it was more me noticing those things in myself. Mm. Yeah. So after she left, how did you go? Um, we found our groove. And, and in actual fact, we didn't put an end date on how long she was going to stay with us, but after about 10 weeks, I think we both started saying, we think, we think we're coming up to the time where I can probably manage on my own and she's not needed. Um, and it just kind of came to a natural conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also running two households. My stepfather, you know, um, she lives with my stepfather and, she was kind of going between the houses and I think that was wearing on her. And I just started to feel more independent and like I could manage it on my own. Yeah. Um, so that was good. I think we didn't get sick of each other. <laughs> we kind of were able to talk about it. Um, and at the right time, we just kind of said, yeah, we think that's the right thing to do. And also Lucas was getting closer to going into his own bedroom. So that was her bedroom at the time. Right. So you need to get out now. <laughs> <laughs> we agreed that it was, it was about time for him to go into the cot. Yes. Um, so at about 12 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so you went back to work about when and how was that transition? Uh, I planned to go back to work after 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started to get in contact with my boss. Um, she let me know that they had restructured again. And as part of that restructure, a number of roles were made redundant, including mine. Oh, no. Um, So that was a bit of a shock. Um, That was a big shock. Um, And I'm glad that I didn't find out until that point because it would have been incredibly stressful to know and to have to make plans for finding another job, um, you know, that far out. Yeah. Um, they gave me access to a redeployment and um, outplacement program and I decided to take the rest of my mat leave and do that at 12 months. I could do that at any time. Yeah. And so that gave me time to get my head together. Um, Lucas had just started in daycare around about that time as well. So that was kind of handy because it gave me the opportunity to um, have some time where I could think about finding another job. And I guess working out what you want to do next as well. Like your new opportunity, yeah. really. Yeah. Yes. 
And it's, it was really hard getting back into the swing of things and having to think about updating a CV and interviewing after oh, yeah. having brain for 10 to 12 months. So that was the not nice part of it. Um, it was also in the midst of, because he was starting at daycare, all of the germs and sickness were coming home. And so he was getting sick. I was getting sick. Um, I remember taking sick leave while I was on redundancy because I had sick leave so I could extend it. Oh, that works well. <laughs> Handy. Um, because we were just so ill. Um, and, and it was kind of during COVID lockdowns. Um, I actually decided because we were so sick, I think we had about six or seven weeks of just back-to-back illness and the doctor saying that we had, you know, two or three bugs at the one time. Oh, um, take him out. Um, and thankfully mum had him uh, for a while, a couple of days a week while I was job hunting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the good thing was that it was all virtual interviews, so I didn't actually have to go anywhere. I could do everything from the comfort of my own home. You could still have um, pyjama pants on as well then. Good, yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I ended up landing out what I now think as, of as my dream job in an oh, industry that I love working in. And so, yeah, I, I think I really landed on my feet. Uh, and I've been there for 18 months now. And I also got extra time with Lucas, which was a blessing in disguise. I was supposed to go back to work in May and I started work in December. So I got oh, so an extra six months, really. Yeah. Yeah. And by that stage, he was walking and, you know, really interactive. And, um, yeah, it was a lovely time. Um, and work's um, fantastic. They're really flexible. Um I work a nine-day fortnight because I've Lucas is with my mum one day a week and with my dad one day a fortnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a really nice balance. I had planned to go back for uh, a four-day week but just couldn't afford it. Um, and then the, t- the childcare arrangements just kind of meant that it was a nine-day fortnight. So I really enjoy my four-day week. Yeah. And then I actually enjoy my five-day week because I get to work a full week, but then I'm, I'm exhausted at the end of it. So then I get to look forward to a four-day week. <laughs> so it's a nice balance. Um, and work are really flexible. So Lucas has special needs. Okay. Uh, and they've been accommodating with that, um, which has been really helpful really helpful so um the backstory to that is that around eight months of age I started noticing some signs in Lucas that were similar to my nephews who are on the spectrum okay um I kind of knew what to look for because my of my two nephews he had a preoccupation with the washing machine yeah which I is unusual for kids around oh. that age but he could sit and watch the washing machine for 10 or 15 minutes at a time spinning he loves spinning things okay uh he wasn't answering to his name mm-hmm. uh he was slower in developing speech when we got to 12 months that was a lot more pronounced um and so I kind of just started to notice those things um and then when it got to 
18 months and he only had a couple of words. Um, oh, he also wasn't um, using hand gestures. Um, he wasn't pointing. That was the main thing right. as well at an, at an age-appropriate level. And I think those things in isolation, you know, aren't so much of a concern. Um, but when it got to 18 months, um, we started to talk to doctors. I um, actually had a session with an engagement therapist um, that my sister had recommended. He also wasn't making eye contact mm. um, to see, yeah, so to see whether the therapist um, could help with some practical strategies. Um, and we went to the GP and went to see a paediatrician and he was diagnosed with a developmental delay, which was the speech. Yeah. That was the first kind of formal diagnosis. Um, and we started him with speech therapy. Thankfully, there's a speech therapist that comes to his daycare. So I didn't. Brilliant. Yeah, I didn't have to take him to appointments. Um, but the other thing that we did do in addition to that was we, me and my mum did a program called It Takes Two, which was a parent program for speech therapy. And it makes sense. You think about it. It does take two to have a conversation. But you, at first you think, if my child's not talking, <laughs> it's all him. How do I get him to talk? Why isn't he saying words? Yeah. But it's all about, you know, communication, verbal or nonverbal being two ways and how to prompt response. And um, that was incredibly valuable for us in supporting Lucas to start talking. Yeah useful um and then we could reinforce things that the speech therapist was doing while we weren't there um as well um we also started this engagement therapy which uh, my sister had recommended which again is trying to get um you know interaction but more about trying to get eye contact and how you could um do that through um engagement and interaction yeah. That's called the Early Start Denver method. Okay. Um, and those two things in parallel, and they could go to Lucas's daycare as well. Um, and I started going to some of those sessions every second week. Um, so I could be there and see what strategies they were using. And they we also did some home visits um with them, but it was all really costly. <laughs> um yeah other thing that we started to do in parallel is with the diagnosis of a developmental delay, we could apply for NDIS funding. Mm -hmm. um, and that took eight months to come oh, through. Wow. Yeah. So um, for early childhood, you can't um, apply direct. You have to get a caseworker right. and they're through a, a local group. And so to be assigned a caseworker took, six months because the waiting list was so long yes um but then once that happened and we started to go through the application process um and then put in a request and there are a number of steps to that um we had funding within about two months 
it's just getting the caseworker in the first pro- first place that was the biggest problem. Yes, yeah. And, you know, it's pretty intensive, the, um, the meetings that you have with them. Um, but part of it is getting to know the child and their challenges. But then you also set goals with them as part of it. it. Part of it is also understanding where they're at currently, which is pretty full on. Mm. Because you are assessing their current level of development. Yeah, and and answering questions. Um, and, in an, you know, on their own, they're not too bad. But when, you know, you do half an hour or an hour of conversation of are they doing this, 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 yeah, it, it um it was pretty difficult um but then part of that as I said is setting goals um which is fantastic and and we use those you know in we created those in conjunction with his therapist before I met with the caseworker and said these are the things that we would like him to achieve yeah um and then they went into the NDIS plan and once we got funding that was a relief because it was incredibly expensive to do those two therapies on a weekly basis that sounds like they're making a massive difference. So you just need to, yeah, great that it's paid for or some of it. So those two therapies, thankfully, we can do at daycare. Mm-hmm. We're now doing occupational therapy for kind of sensory um, issues as well. Um, and I go along to that with Lucas on a weekly basis as much as possible. Um, and that's really helpful. And we've just come up for our 12-month review um for the plan and the goals are fantastic because you can actually see the progress yeah um and and part of the 12 month review is actually getting um reports from each of the therapists as well so we can see how much he's progressed and he is amazing from only being able to say five or six words 12 months ago when we did our first plan he is forming sentences of probably up to 12 words. He's um, a lot of, uh, so we uh, during that time we also got the um, autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. Uh, we didn't need that uh, for the NDIS, but it's just really helpful in terms of understanding him mm-hmm. um, and, you know, how we can support him through therapy. Um. And, yeah, kids on the spectrum have a thing called echolalia. So when they start to talk, if they're verbal, so thankfully Lucas is verbal, he's uh, level two on kind of on a scale of one to three. Um, often kids will repeat back to you what, you know, you've said to them and and keep repeating it over and over again. Yeah. Um, and that's how he started talking. But now it's more interactive he's he's still developmentally behind other kids of his age in many many ways speech um interaction he's fantastic from a gross motor perspective and was walking from 12 months so hasn't had a problem (laughs) kind of being really active um which is great but now um, yeah, language is, is coming along in leaps of bounds. We're able to have conversations. He's starting to make friends at daycare. Oh, beautiful. Encouragement. Yeah, thankfully the engagement therapist is helping with that. So at first it was about engaging with me and family and making eye contact. And now it's about understanding how group dynamics work 
and being part of kind of a group plan and then also starting to make connections one-on-one with his peers. And so the engagement therapist goes and to daycare on a weekly basis and we'll pick a couple of buddies and they'll find something that Lucas likes playing with and they'll all play uh, together. Have daycare been really supportive with all of this? They have. Um, They've got... An additional, so with NDIS funding and a, and a diagnosis, my funding goes into support his development directly, but daycare can also apply for an additional support worker to have in the room. Oh, great. Um, they have been a little slow to do that, but their ratios have meant that actually there's an additional person in the room anyway. Um, so that's fantastic. And I looked at putting him in a different daycare that might have a bit more structure but their ratios were higher mm-hmm. um, as in one to ten um in terms of the um child care workers whereas we've got one to five that's great ratio and, yeah and the whole idea with the inclusion support worker is that they're not there for to support lucas one-on-one but to make sure all the kids in the classroom are engaged and and feeling included yeah um so, so that's great. Yeah, he he recently just moved up rooms into the kind of more preschool level, which he was developmentally ready for. Um, and the new teachers in there are fantastic. And it's just going to be about finding the best school and things for him after that as well. Yes. Yes, that's a whole other kettle of fish. I mean, having a child with a, a diagnosis has meant that I've had to rethink and and I don't know whether I've yet come to terms with the fact that life is going to be different for us and I will have to think about which school is right for him um, and just to, to support his development. And it's probably not the local school here, local primary school. It I, I will have to give some more thought to how to best support him mm. when he gets closer to that. Yeah, and I assume you'll still have the funding and things all through his schooling, so hopefully that will help with additional support during that too. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> it changes every year, so the amounts can go up and down. Um, and it's a bit random from what I can tell. So fingers crossed it still continues to be really good, but hopefully the school, again, will be able to apply for additional support to yep. be able to have that. Just interrupting this episode for a quick word from our sponsors. Not only have City Fertility sponsored this episode, they are also extending a very generous 20% off discount for all of my listeners. That's 20% off IUI, IVF, ICSI, as well as six months complimentary egg, sperm and embryo storage. If you're just starting out or about to undergo treatment to make your baby dreams come true, head to the show notes for my discount code and a link to their website for more information. Yeah, so that's that. That still seems quite a way off, but now that he's starting to make friends, that's a, a lot more comforting and encouraging. Because um, it's tricky when I see him with his peers. We've got a couple of friends that we've been that he's had since he was very young. One who's um, uh, the daughter of a, another solo mum. We've become really good friends. Oh, beautiful. Uh, Lucas and Verity have been close ever since they were little. We've been away for weekends together. Um, and that's really nice to see them interacting. But his interaction style with kind of peers across the board is a little bit different. So it's lovely to see him starting to make friends. Yeah. 
yeah, and I'll do whatever I can to encourage and support that. Have you managed to build quite a good social network with other kids, maybe through other solo mums or anything else? Yeah, and that's been really important to me. Um, solo mums and, you know, other mums. So we've got a, a tight-knit mums group um, and actually the kind of four of us that still meet up, another one is a solo mum as well. Oh, brilliant. So that's really nice. We've had that since birth. And then I've been part of some solo mums groups. Um, one since before I had Lucas and we go away with that group on an annual basis up to the central coast. Awesome. Which is lovely. Uh, great for meeting you know, other like-minded mums, older mums, you know, not older mums, mums with older kids, <laughs> <laughs> mums with younger kids. Um, and that's a great network. And it's fantastic because it's a holiday park where, you know, we're close to the beach, there's pools, there's activities for kids of all ages. Yeah. Um, and the mums are quite social. And we typically try and get villas that are all very close together so we can kind of go between um villas so we're about to do that for the third year in a row which is okay. lovely and it's growing yeah. um yeah I think we had about 80 people last year we've got a big group photo um so that's really really nice um and another group that I um found through a local Facebook group as well um that meet regularly locally here and just as I joined that group, that group of mums decided to go away for a weekend. So we had 20 of us in a house in the Blue Mountains. It was 10 kids and nine mums. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Carnage. <laughs> we called that controlled chaos. Right. <laughs> it, that number of people in the one house with uh, with kids from kind of 18 months up to three and a half years was pretty hectic. So all on different sleep schedules and eating schedules and, uh, but it was lovely and it was a great way to get to know that group of mums quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, yes, there's, you know, a couple of those I've met with separately. Um, so it's really important to me to have other solo mums Um as part of our community. I actually got to a point about six months ago where I decided that, you know, I was feeling lonely in the evenings. I I didn't really feel lonely until then. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of a day of work, I'm so exhausted and, you know, I get an hour of me time and then it's, you know, bedtime. Um, and I, you know, I started to feel like it would be nice to, have someone to talk to um, for that hour <laughs> in my day. And I just, and I was talking to a couple of um, friends who don't have kids, but who were dating and they talked me into considering whether I would get back in and start dating again. Yeah. And I tried that. Um, but really all I was looking for was someone to, probably come out for dinner and that's the other thing going out for dinner I love um really into food and love dining out and we'll do that and have done that from a young age with Lucas mm -hmm. and we'll go away on holidays with family and go out for dinner all the time so it's important for me 
that he likes going out for dinner and he can sit at the table. Um, and so, yeah, I pretty much figured that I could probably give someone one or two nights a week with a five o'clock dinner. As long <laughs> as it's with good food. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to have a couple of glasses of wine and good chat with someone, but that was all I was pretty much up for if it came to a relationship. (laughs) At this point in time, I won't rule it out in future. And I did actually go back onto dating sites and eventually found someone that I thought that I'd like to meet up with, a single dad. I kind of thought, you know, it would make sense um, to try and it would probably, we would have the most in common if I dated a single dad. Yeah. We started chatting online for quite a bit and we decided that we would meet up, but it actually took us two weeks to find one evening that would work in both of our calendars. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it was a lot of work. It just, and we met up, we had a lovely evening, but I kind of just decided that it was all a bit too much work and, I would try and build out my solo mum community because I could get the same, I could have the same experience with other like-minded solo mums of going out for dinner occasionally and not have to have any other commitment, anyone else to worry about. I think that's one of the things that's fantastic about being a solo mum is that, you know, you're independent, you can make choices on your own. Yes, that might be a bit daunting, at times, but I kind of like it. <laughs> We're all a bit independent and stroppy. I think we we quite like doing what we want. So, and then yeah, yeah, you don't have to put on the effort of like the hair and makeup and stuff as well. We just have nice conversation with someone with delicious food. Great evening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. The I mean the delicious food and sitting still. I'm not quite sure how long that's going to last for us. So Lucas has likely got ADHD as well. We found out recently. Yeah. So that's not entirely surprising to me. Um, he's not able to sit still. Uh, he runs away a lot. He's a very very active child. Um, he's still able to fit in a high chair when we go out for dinner. So I don't know. He's trapped. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no. My days of going out for dinner are, are done. <laughs> That's the same problem. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, I'm going to have to find some kind of strategy to help him sit still. He loves eating, so, and he will quite often start eating before anyone else at the table because I'll give him snacks. The food will arrive and he will still be eating when we're still eating. So if I can keep that going that's a really positive thing yeah. <laughs> should work right. in my favor and have you thought anything about making contact with the donor or how you'll address that in the future with lucas i've just made contact actually oh wow um, yeah um so in terms of how i'll address it with him i have made a storybook and a photo book about how he came to be um, and have photos of our donor in that book. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about my donor, but he has no idea what yep. that is and just loves the pictures in there. Um, and so that, that was important. I probably did that about 12 months um, of age. That was important to me to have that, to start to read to him. Um, 
I thought about writing a letter to the donor until, you know, just a few weeks ago. Every time a birthday would roll around, I'd think I really yeah. should really should do that because um, I've heard of other people reaching out. Um, and our donor did say that he would be willing to have contact before the age of 18. Um, I'm not rushing into that at all. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you, um, to him. That was the crux of the letter. It was interesting. Our fertility clinic, um, offers counseling. I was also considering going onto, um, a registry, sibling registry. Mm -hmm. Um, we have five siblings. Yeah. So, um, Lucas is the oldest. Okay. Um, I think there's I think there's four with one on the way and all of the allocation is exhausted um with the five families rule. Um and so yeah, they recommend um counseling and they also give you advice on kind of reaching out to the donor. Yeah. Um from a donor perspective, I just wanted to say thank you. And it was quite an interesting process because some of the feedback I got was I wanted to tell them about Lucas and what he was interested in. Um, and the feedback was, you know, first of all, uh, being able to um have uh, uh you know, not talking about when he was born and so anything that could kind of impact their anonymity mm-hmm. and um you know no names no dates um etc and also got some interesting feedback around just the level of detail that the donor would probably be interested in okay. um, so not necessarily sharing all the interests so I, that was um interesting so I just went with a bit more of a generic message um talked about what he looked like um, how I was really appreciative and how I'd, you know, been able to change my life and, you know, how wonderful and cared for Lucas is and the support network that we have. Yeah. Um, so I just sent that off and I haven't got a response. And I didn't, I didn't put anything in there around, you know, we'd be open to contact because I'm just not ready to go there yet. And I also didn't want to put any pressure on. Um, so it's just kind of a thank you note when it came to the siblings, um, that was an interesting kind of counseling session and some things that came up were around trying to understand what my motivations would be, um, for wanting to get in contact with siblings. And it was more around me wanting to make contact also for him but just kind of also wanting to meet people that were in similar situations. And the advice wasn't against that, but it just made me think about wanting to do it when Lucas is ready to, because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be his decision. And the other thing is if I met the other parents and they wanted something, we wanted different things out of the relationship, different level of frequency for contact or um, just different expectations that could potentially impact how I felt about meeting those people and then could impact Lucas's opportunity to meet them in future. If I, if I met up with the parents and we didn't get along, 
then that would mean that I wouldn't want to see them, you know, or could be less likely to want to see them. So I've decided to hold off on doing that until it's something that Lucas wants to do. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to find out, um, given his diagnoses, whether any of those things um, have come out for other people. I mean, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, isn't necessarily hereditary. ASD um, is though. <laughs> yes, which is interesting because I don't have it and we don't have ADHD anywhere else in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't disclosed. They so, might not know yet either. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's curious. But and and I kind of went through, should I tell the donor team? You know, is it something I should let people know about? Um, but clearly people are already having kids as well. So it's kind of like, you know, what benefit would that have? Um, still undecided on what to do about that, if anything. Um, but yeah, so for now, having made initial contact or reached out to the donor, that feels like enough, but I would love to to meet, um, the donor siblings and just see whether they look like Lucas. He doesn't look anything like me. He doesn't. Um, Okay. No, I, he has blonde, uh, strawberry blonde bordering on red curly hair. So the curls come from me. Yeah. Uh, the red actually comes from my side of the family. My dad was a redhead, my uncle on my mum's side. So we actually do have red in, in the family, but it was a complete surprise. He's <laughs> uh, got bright blue eyes. We've got a lot of blue and green eyes on my side of the family, but I think he looks um more like the donor than he does like me. So I would love to see what his siblings look like and and how similar they are. That would be fantastic in the future. But, yeah, it's not the right time. Yeah. yeah. I guess you just have to take his lead and try and work out when that will be. Yes. I haven't told him that he has brothers and sisters yet. So I'm not quite sure how to introduce that. No, um, and I'm yet to find a good book on that as well. I found ones that are suitable for a, quite a bit older, but not really anything that's good for three-year-olds. Yeah. Owner siblings. Mm. Maybe there's a market. Well, and um, interestingly, a tool that you use with kids on the spectrum is a social story. Mm-hmm. It's a way of preparing them for things that are going to happen. and we're just doing it at the moment with brushing my teeth because teeth brushing is an issue, but Lucas loves reading. it's an issue for all three-year-olds, don't worry. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I think social stories could be fantastic with kids that are not on the spectrum, but you draw out things that are going to happen to prepare them. And then also an OT skill that we've got is that you draw what just happened and, and talk about the drawing and stick figures work. So um, I'm sure I could make a social story. So you <laughs> are now going to be the best person to play Pictionary with as well. <laughs> oh, no, pictures are terrible. <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter to a three-year-old. They, they see a they stick figure person and it makes sense and you explain it too. So um, yeah, it's a good tool. It's a really good mm. tool. Might have to try that one. Yeah. So if you look back on your journey now, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently or would change? Um, I don't think so. 
I do wish I wasn't so old with a very active toddler, but I wouldn't change the decision and wait until I made that decision. I just wasn't ready um, at that stage to have a child. Um, and I like to live with no regrets. So I, no, I don't wish anything was different. And how do you think becoming a mother has changed you as a woman? Oh, has changed and continues to change me. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, patience. I'm a very impatient person. And so it has been a great test of patience. And then not just having a child on my own and not just having a toddler, but having a toddler that's got <laughs> special needs and um you know, having a child with ADHD that is incredibly active has taught me a lot uh, of patience. And in actual fact, I'm going through a bit of a journey at the moment to learn how to manage my own emotions around Lucas. And if, if that's part of being a parent, full stop, mm-hmm. I think, you know, you you get past the first year and you learn so much in that first year and you think, that that's the the heavy lifting, but you just continue to grow and change. And at the moment it's about managing my emotions. And I think, yes, that's in relation to toddler behaviour, but also potentially some more frustrating behaviours, which I think are the ADHD. So um, Lucas, we're working through how to manage his emotions better, but, you know, he'll get really upset and throw something and break it and then want it all of a sudden. And that's a lot to deal with in the space of about 10 seconds. (laughs) And it's big big emotions. And so how do I remain calm um, through all of that and manage my own emotions? And that's just a constant learning process. Um, So, and hopefully that will you know, help me with a lot in in the long run. It's funny, you go to work and think that work is challenging until you have a child. <laughs> work becomes a break. Yeah. <laughs> becomes the easier part of your day. Um, and the other thing is I'm trying to include Lucas in things that I love to do and kind of be true to who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and also know that I'm not going to be good at everything and I can't teach him everything. So I love cooking and baking. And so we get into the kitchen and bake and I love walking. And so thankfully he still likes to get into a pram for half an hour and I love going out to restaurants. And so it's important that, you know, he does that with me and things like um, drawing and craft and gardening, you know, I've felt bad recently that he's not really into gardening, but my mum is like, I can take care of those things. I can help those things. They're things I'm yeah. good at. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just thinking about what it is that I want to instill Lucas with and, and getting him hopefully to share some of my passions as well. It's great. And travel with, you know we've been away on holiday quite a bit and it's important that we continue to do that and continue to expand our horizons and go a little bit further. You're um, thinking overseas in the not too distant future? Yes, we're going to see um, family in New Zealand 
for Christmas. Wonderful. That would be um, excellent. But, yeah, I'd love to go further afield. I'd love to go to Fiji and I'd love to go to Bali and uh, that's probably far enough. A three-hour flight is pretty much all I can wrap my head around right now because that's just a little bit further than we did last time. <laughs> um, so I think yeah, if I've, I've learned anything, it all comes down to the timing of the flight. That is the key. You get that wrong, it just makes or breaks it. Yeah. Well, we recently did um, a three-hour flight up to Cairns and um, I thought that Lucas might sleep because at least on the return flight, it was during his nap time and that just didn't work. So I've still, I need to figure out how to get him to sleep at his sleep time on a plane. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, if anyone's just considering this journey and trying to work out whether it's the right one for them or not, is there any advice you'd give them? I think talk to other solo mums that are that are currently going through the journey um, and find out what the realities are um, and I think it's, you know, anything is possible. I think it's, I know that people are, are solo mums that don't have a big support network, you know, people that um, have family overseas we're lucky that we've got a big support network locally so that's certainly incredibly helpful um and I'd say surround yourself with like-minded people once once you're kind of there (laughs) um because it's really helpful to have people that are on the same path who are completely supportive and know what you're going through um and then you know even talk to solo mums if you're if you're thinking about it yeah and it is possible it's very possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story tonight, Angela. I love the, the insight that you were able to give us on some special needs and the journey that you've been on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Alicia, and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.